Chronicles with me this morning. Second Chronicles. And I know some of you are just like, oh no, history, here we go. But uh, Second Chronicles chapter 2. Did you ever, you ever just have those songs that hit you? That was, it was it this morning, but that was good. You sounded great, and I really, really enjoyed, enjoyed hearing you sing uh, this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 12. And uh, I want you, want you to think with me for a moment. Can you imagine uh, yourself... At the end of World War II, uh, you can pick whatever side, whatever city you came from. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter the side. Doesn't matter Axis Ally. Doesn't doesn't matter any of that. You pick you pick whatever town. Maybe it was Berlin. Maybe it was London. Maybe it was Hiroshima. Maybe it was Stalingrad. Whatever whatever city that is facing intense bombing. It's facing artillery shelling like none other. And. You were off, whether a war or maybe you went away because the bombings in London and you went to the north so that you weren't there. And you are now coming back to your city. What do you do? How do you revive your city? How do you, where do you start? What do you do? Where do, where do you even begin? And you start looking around and, and you feel almost this sense of hopelessness. This sense of despair. Like, how, how, can I, how can I help to revive the city I so passionately loved? The, the city I so passionately fought for? How can, how can I do that? What, where do I go? I have to believe that when the Jews returned from Babylon, after the exile to Babylon, they came back and felt very similar to that situation. Little hope. Morale is low. They're looking and saying, this task seems daunting. What do I do? Where do I go? And looming in the back of their mind are questions. Questions they may have. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they talked about this new covenant. What is it? Where, where is it? Why, why hasn't God spoken to us about it? When's he going to reveal it? Well, what about the line of David? We're back in the city and we don't have a king. Where is it? God promised that there's always going to be a king on the throne. Where, where is this king at? Is, is God still in control? Can we depend on his word? Can we depend on him? Should we trust him? And they're wondering, where do we go? What do we do? How do we turn? What, what, what's next? For them, during the post-exile, when they came back, for the Jews who came back to Judah, Jerusalem, after the Babylonian captivity, they were facing others' tasks, physical difficulties, raiders who would come in and tear down the walls, raiders who would come in and make it difficult for them to worship. There was pagan worship going on. Some of the Jews had even brought back parts of the Persian worship back into Jerusalem, and they were trying to mix it together. There was intermarrying with foreign, foreigners, and it was causing idolatry to be crept into the, into the Jewish people there in Judah after the Babylonian exile. And they're looking around, and they're saying, what do we do? How do we revive this? How do we, how do we go forward? What's the next step? What do, what do I need to do? And I, I, it's in that background of these individuals feeling a little bit of hopelessness, feeling a little bit of despair, feeling struggle that Ezekiel, or excuse me, Ezra is going to write Second Chronicles. He writes it originally to inspire, to inspire and give hope to those who are feeling despair, to those who are looking around and saying the situation's too difficult. He tells the people, you have a choice. You have a responsibility to turn this around, to right the ship, to, to make, make things the way that we're supposed to be doing them. And he does this with a particular focus through the book of Chronicles. 
Chronicles was originally one book tracing it all the way through. And he doesn't trace Israel in the north and Judah in the south after the division. He traces the story from Adam all the way to the Jews coming back to the land. But he does it looking at the line of David. And he does it looking at Judah, the southern, the southern tribe of Judah the, after the division, looking specifically through them. Ezra's not going to simply write a history lesson. Too many times I think we look at Chronicles and go, all right, it's just the history of the kings and that's that's what it is. The book of Chronicles is actually Ezra writing historical aspects, but he does it with a spiritual perspective. He wants us to grasp. He wanted the people there originally to grasp what was happening. How do we get here? Can we trust God? Can God fix the situations we face? Is God dependable? And so Ezra writes with that purpose. And we're going we're gonna to start in 2 Chronicles 12, and we're just going to do a survey. I am not, not going to go through and look at every verse in the book of Chronicles. You would all look at me and go, see you later, and you'd walk out the door, and I understand that. But I want to just get some sound bites through the book of 2 Chronicles. And as you go through, the notes today, very Spartan. There's very little. There's, there's not a whole lot to write down because I want us to engage with the Word. And as you read, maybe you're here, you don't have a Bible, and somebody next to you wants to share with you, I would encourage us all, let's look into the Word of God. And maybe something's going to resonate with you. Write it down. You're going to say, well, I'm like that person. Write it down. Let, Let you start to perpetuate the notes as you read, as we go through some of the texts in the Scripture, and say, what does God have for us out of 2 Chronicles that we need for our church today? What truths can we learn as we go through? What you're going to see is that as the book is written, Judah's spiritual state is this. Judah is either in spiritual decline or Judah is going to be in spiritual revival. It's pictured through the life and the action of the kings of Judah. And you're going to see this waves. It's going to ebb and flow. It's going to decline and revival, decline and revival, decline and revival all around the spiritual, not the political, not the economic, though those things come with the, the, the nature of the text. But looking at the spiritual temperature of Judah, generally speaking, it goes this way. As the king goes, so go the people. And so when we look at Chronicles, it highlights the king because it gives a reflection of what the people are doing as well. Now, it's not always the case, but for the most part, it is like that. So we start in Second, Second Chronicles chapter 12. And in Second Chronicles chapter 12 and 13, we're going to have the first spiritual decline that takes place in Judah. Uh, Solomon has died. The, there's going to be a division in the nation. Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. He's going to take the southern two tribes. Jeroboam is going to lead in a revolt. Rehoboam has the opportunity to bring peace and unity to the, to the tribes, but he doesn't do that. In fact, his, he gets counsel from some of the sage elders, and they say, do this and it will be okay. And he refuses. He listens to some peer counseling, and he says, you think my father taxed you hard? You think my father treated you poorly? Just wait to see what I do. And they caused the division and a, and a rift that caused the splitting, and God allowed that split to take place as you read through the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, God allows that to take place. And you have two tribes. You have Judah in the south. You have Israel in the north. The book of Second Chronicles focuses on Judah in the south. There's a couple times where you find yourself, 
hearing about Israel, but for the most part, we're going to focus on Judah. Notice, notice in chapter 12, verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 14, it's going to talk about this first king, Rehoboam. Uh, in, in Rehoboam, it says, verse 14, that he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. So his evil actions, his life was known as being evil, not, not a godly man, because the Bible specifically says he did not prepare, make the time, make the effort, make the diligent pursuit. He did not prepare himself to seek after the Lord. And so what happens is he's going to die. Verse 16, Rehoboam is going to die. He sleeps with his fathers. And Abijah, his son, is going to become the king. Verse uh, 16, he's there. Chapter 13 talks about Abijah. And it talks about in verse 21, he's going to take multiple wives. uh, Very similar to what his father did. Very similar to what Solomon did. Very contrary to what the law tells them to do. So he's not following. 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 3 it actually tells us a little bit more about Abijah. It says that he walked in sin, not like his father David. And the idea is grandfather. And so because of that, by the time you get through chapter 13, there's not, a, there's not a whole lot there. It talks more about what he just did. But by the time you get to chapter 14, Abijah is going to die as well. And just putting that together with kings, we see that there is a spiritual decline that takes place. It doesn't seem that bad. When you read through chapters 13 and 14, the spiritual temperature, it doesn't highlight all the wicked things that we're going to see in a few minutes here by some of the other kings. But there is definitely a spiritual decline that takes place. And spiritual decline in our lives often doesn't happen overnight. It's these little incremental steps that move us further and further away from, away from the Lord. And so we find that the nation of Judah is moving slowly away from God. And there needs to be some revival. And so what happens is the, the first revival is going to take place. It's going to take place under two kings, one named Asa, one named Jehoshaphat. Now look, look at the, the similarities as we go through some of these moments of revival. Notice them as, they, as we go through. Chapter 14, verse 2. And Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. What, what made that true? For he took away the altars and the strange gods and the high places. Whenever you see the idea of high places, it's places they were sacrificing to pagan deities. They broke down the images. They cut down the groves. Another place where they would go and they would worship false gods are the groves. You'll see that a couple times here. They commanded Judah. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandment. And he took away out of all of the cities of Judah, the high places and the images and the kingdom was quiet before him. So he highlights doing the commands, doing what God says, getting rid of false worship, truly worshiping God. So there's an emphasis on worship. There's an emphasis on the word of God. There's an emphasis on doing right according to what God says. And what we find here is by the time things get established for Asa, there, there's going to be a situation that rolls around in, in verse 9 and 10, that there comes against him an army from Ethiopia. And, and when this army comes in and there's pressure against him, how does he respond when there's difficulty, when there's pressure in his life? Notice, notice what he's going to say down in uh, verse 11. It says, And Asa cried unto the Lord God and said, Lord, is there nothing with thee to help? Whether with many or with, with them that have no power, help us, O Lord. For we rest on thee, and in the name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art God, let not man prevail against thee. And so, so Asa looks and he says, you have the power to help us. We rest our, we're resting in you, 
in these pressure-filled times, in these difficult moments. And so he finds his pressure, in those pressure moments, he turns to God. And so, so what happens is the prophet responds to him in chapter 15, verse 2. It says, uh, uh, he went out to him, Azariah the prophet, says, Asa went out to Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you, while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And so as they depend on God, God is, God is giving them strength. God is helping. As they forsake God, God is, God is allowing them to the error of their ways, to face the consequences of their choice to remove God out of their life and, and remove him from the spiritual dependence. And so he's serious about, about his, his heart. Look at verse 12. Asa says they entered into a covenant. He entered into a covenant to do what? To seek the Lord the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. He and the people are entering into this covenant with God and saying, we are going to, with our whole hearts, serve you, passionately follow you, do what you want us to do and live for you. How serious was he? Look in verse 16. Verse 16 says that he, also concerning Makah, the mother of Asa, the king, he removed her from being queen. He said, mom, you're not the queen anymore. See ya. Because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa cut down her idol and stamped it out and burnt it in the brook Kidron. But the high places were not all taken out. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was perfect. The idea of perfect, you're going to see this a couple times, is totally devoted. Was perfect or totally devoted to God. He was serious. He says, mom, you're gone. I mean, I have a hard enough time saying I love you, mom, sometimes, let alone the bad things and saying, mom, you're wrong. And it's, it's looking, he's like, you're gone. You're, why? Because you are idolatrous. Because you are not following after Jehovah. You are not doing what God has commanded you to do in your position of leadership. And, and so Asa, Asa's serious. And as Asa's reign continues in chapter 16, there's going to, there's going to come another, another struggle. Now, this is 36 years into his reign. So he has, he has experienced revival. He has been a spiritual leader. He's been on fire wholeheartedly for God for 36 years of his life. And verse 2, Asa is going to face a situation. Asa brought silver and gold out of the treasure of the house of the king of Syria. Why is he doing this? Because Israel from the north is going to be invading him, and he doesn't think that he can handle them. And so he tries to ally himself with Syria. And how does he do it? He's going he's gonna to take money from the temple. He's going to give money to the king of Syria and say, here, come help me. As long as you are trusting in the Lord, the Lord will provide for you. That was earlier. Now, 36 years into his spiritual life, he's struggling. And what, what happens? The, the prophet Hanani comes to him, verse uh, 7. And he looks, at, he looks at him and he says to him, uh, why have you relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord your God? Therefore, is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of your hand? Why weren't we stronger than the Ethiopians when they came and the Lubims, such a high host? He says, you've done this before, but why not now? And he, he gives this beautiful verse in, in verse 9. Verse 9 is one of those, it's highlighted in my Bible. He looks at him and he says, you're trusting in the wrong person. He says, the eyes of the Lord, they're running to and fro throughout the whole earth looking to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is mature, or excuse me, wholeheartedly devoted, perfect toward him. 
And he looks at Asa and says, Here, and you have done foolishly. Therefore, from henceforth, you shall have wars. He says, You stop trusting in me. Here's this, here's this man who was devoted for all these years, and yet he finds himself slipping into a spiritual decline. And notice his response. You're thinking, okay, he's a, he's a spiritual guy. He'll respond humbly, right? He'll, he'll respond. Look in verse 10. Asa was wroth with the seer and put him in prison. And there, his rage was because of this thing. And Asa oppressed some of the people. Maybe he learned from his lesson. Did he learn? Sadly, no. Verse 12, later on. And Asa in his 39th year, three years later in his reign, he was diseased in his feet until the disease was exceeding great. And what does the scripture under inspiration of God say? Yet in his disease, he sought not the Lord, but only to the physicians. We know we're going to go to the physicians. We're going to go to the Lord both. But he didn't seek the Lord at all saying, Lord, help. In the time of distress, going back to the Lord, he dies. His son Jehoshaphat comes on uh, this, uh, the scene. And as he comes on the scene, verse 3 of chapter 17, it says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto Balaam, unto, unto Baal, the false god, but rather he sought the Lord. How is, how is it? You look through, he walked in righteousness. He rejected idolatry. He sought the Lord's God, the Lord God. He walked in God's commandments at the end of verse 4. He walked in his commandments and not after the doings of Israel. He didn't walk after the worldliness, after the fleshliness of Israel, but rather he sought to be spiritual before God. And it, it happens as he goes through uh, in verses 8 and 9. He's going to send men. I, I love this. Even in our thought of disciple making in our church, it says that he sent Levites to Shimei and Hemiah and all these different guys. And he sends them around the country to teach in Judah the book of the law of the Lord with them. He saw the importance of teaching people to go teach people the word of God. To be disseminating the word of God and the importance of every single person hearing and understanding and knowing what they're supposed to do in their life according to the word of God. And so there's this emphasis that just continually is taking place. Now, verse eight, chapter 18 is a weird chapter because all of a sudden we get thrust into Israel in the north. But it's still in relationship to Jehoshaphat. In the middle of his revival, in the middle of doing what's right before the Lord, he goes to, to the north and he's going to make an alliance with the king of Israel. It might seem harmless. It's just, a, it's just an alliance to maybe help with battles or different things. But it's going to reap, reap consequences later. The king of the north at this time, you know, you know his name. His name's Ahab. And so he's going to ally himself with Ahab. Not a whole lot. It almost seems harmless throughout the, throughout the chapter. There's a lot that goes on there. But look at the response in chapter 19 of the prophet of God as they find Jehoshaphat coming back from his meeting with, with Ahab. He looks, he looks at the king in verse 2. And he says, And Jehu, the son of Hananiah, the seer, the prophet here, went out to meet him and said to Jehoshaphat, Should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is the wrath upon thee from before the Lord. He looks and says, You did, you did something wrong here. This was not right to be allying yourself with Ahab. And he looks though in verse 3 and he says, But nevertheless... You're still, you still have a heart that's turning toward God. You want to do what's right. And he says, there are good things found in you. And that you've taken away the groves out of the land and you've prepared your heart to seek God. And so he, he does this. And, and chapter 19 talks a little bit more. But by the time you get to chapter 20, here comes this, this stressor again. This, this 
nation is going to come against them in battle. And you have two nations coming against them in Moab and Ammon. Just like his father had the situation, now he's going to have that situation. And how does he respond? Look in verse 3. It says, Jehoshaphat was afraid. He feared. But what did he do? He set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast through all of Judah. He says, okay, I need to do what's right. I need to seek the Lord. Not like my father. This was dad's downfall. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to seek the Lord through it. I'm going to proclaim a fast. And look in verse verse 12. Verse 12, another one of those great verses. Oh, our God, in his prayer to God, he says, Will you not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that comes against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Remember, the eyes are searching. The eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro. And he's looking and saying, God, our eyes are on you. Look at us. Give us strength. Help us in this moment of pressure, this moment of seeming disarray. Give us the strength. Give us the wisdom. Help us to know what to do because we are turning to you. We're not turning to ourselves. We're not turning to man-made plans. We're not turning to devices of everybody else. We are going to turn to you in the middle of our difficulty. And verse 13, And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, their children. They're standing before the Lord during this time and committing and saying, we're looking to you. It's a difficult time, but we're looking to you. And what the response of all of that, they go through the battle. They stand before the Lord. The Lord wins a great battle against Moab and Ammon in the rest of chapter 20. And by the end of chapter 20, get down to verse number 30. Verse 30, it says, So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for God gave him rest round about. Even different from his father. Remember, his father responded differently. There was continual war. Now there's war. He, he inherits that. And he says, No, I'm going to turn to you. And God providentially, sovereignly gives him rest and peace because in the midst of his difficulties and trial, he turns to God, seeks the Lord, seeks to do his word and follow after God. Now, Jehoshaphat is going to die. There's going to be the death of Jehoshaphat at the end of chapter 20. In verse chapter 21, you're going to see that his son, Jehoram, is going to become king. Now, Jehoram, it's really interesting Good king, bad king. Look at verse 4 and you tell me. Now Jehoram was risen up to the kingdom of his father. He strengthened himself and slew all his brothers. He killed all his brothers with a sword and other princes of Israel. Hmm. Not thinking we got a spiritual revival happening at this point. He's going to, he's going to kill all his brothers. He's afraid of them taking the throne. He's afraid of other people who might try and make claim to the throne. So he kills all of them. And uh, do you remember, you remember chapter 18, his father met with King Ahab, right? makes an alliance. Now, alliances were made one of two ways, typically. It was either through money or it was through marriage. Jehoram, look in, look in verse um, 13, or verse 6, excuse me. Uh, Jehoram was 32 years old, verse 5. He began to reign. He reigned eight years, and he walked in the way of the kings like as did the house of Ahab. For he had the daughter of Ahab to wife. That meeting with Jehoshaphat was not just a, hey, do do you really love the things that are evil? The prophet says there was a marriage alliance. Whether it took place at that point or it took place earlier, we're not clear on that. But now what had happened was there was this 
the, his son, he marries his son to a Baal-worshipping woman from the north. It's going to have consequences. It, didn't see, it seemed harmless, but it had great impact. In fact, it has great impact for a number of years in Judah's history. Verse 6, his mom is Athaliah. The results, they walked in the ways of the king of Israel. He walked after worldliness, after flesh, after Baal worship. He brings it. He's known for bringing Baal worship, which we hear about in the north with Elijah and Ahab and Elijah and Ahab. But Jehoram brings it into the south, into the, into the kingdom of Judah. Verse 7, it says, I mean, God is wroth about this. He did evil in the sight of the, the, the Lord, but the Lord would not destroy the house of David. There weren't, there weren't others at this point. He doesn't destroy the house of the, David because what did Jehoram already do? Jehoram already killed them all. So the Lord is not, he's going to keep his word to David. He's going to allow some children to be procreated here so that there is a, a Davidic line still because God is not going to, God's not going to go back on his word. He's going to hold to his word. What he says he will do, he will do in spite of people, but he will, he will accomplish his ways. And so, it ends up being, by the end of his life, Elijah's going to come down from the north, and Elijah's going to talk to him, verses 12 and 13. It says, The prophet of Elijah says to him, Because you did not walk in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, nor in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but you walked in the ways of the king of Israel, and have made Judah and the inhabitants to go whoring, like the whoredoms of the house of Ahab, and you have slain your brother and your father's house, which were better than thyself. Behold, there's a great plague that's going to smite you. You're going to die. And he talks about the, I mean, literally your insides are going to fall out in the days of your sickness. I mean, Elijah gets pretty graphic with him. You did something heinous and you are going to face the consequences. And and Jehoram Jehoram is going to die. Well, when Jehoram dies, his son uh, Ahaziah becomes the king. Now his son Ahaziah, look in verse chapter 2, verse 22. It's going to say his mother was Athaliah. The idea, the, the word daughter here, the Hebrew word has the idea of granddaughter because Omri was her grandfather. But mom is that same, that same woman who brought the Baal worship down. And look what, the, look what the scriptures say. And he also, verse 3, walked in the house of Ahab for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. This woman has wreaked havoc on Judah. This Baal worship, this false God worship, this allowing of rightful worship of God to be corrupted by worldly practices, to be fleshly, cause problems in Judah. Well, he's going to die. He's going to get killed by Jehu, who was commissioned in the north to exterminate the line of Ahab. And when mom hears about this, when mom is going to hear about it, verse 10 of chapter 22, but when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal seed. She's going after the house of David now. She's going to wipe out. She's going to do opposite of what God, God's going to try and keep this line. God says, get rid of the house of Ahab. Well, I'm going to get rid of the house of David. And she goes to wipe everybody out. And that's, that's what her, her, her job is she's, in her life. She's going to make that her, her goal. Now, verse 11, it talks about this moment. I, I feel like verse 11 could be one of those, uh, I don't want to use Jerry Springer, but that's stupidly what comes to mind. That type of, look at what happens here. This is really weird. But it says, okay, and Jehoshaphat, the daughter of the king. Now, it's the daughter of the king by another wife, okay, takes her stepbrother, Joash, steals him. He's the prince, by the way. And she steals him 
And she does it with her husband, Jehoiada, who's the priest. So you have this wife from another, from an, uh, this, this woman from another, sister from another wife, who steals the prince with the priest, and they're going to they're gonna take him away from crazy psycho grandma who's looking to kill everybody. I mean, you just see this playing out on one of those dumb shows. It's just like, you know, you see grandma like ready to, to come at, at the little kid. So what, what are they going to do? Where are you going to hide this child? I, I, I love it because, I mean, where are you going to hide the priest or hide, hide Joash? You know, I think you're going to hide it somewhere where a Baal-worshipping, psychotic, genocidal maniac probably is not going to go. You hide him in the temple of God because they're not, they're not finding that's That's where she ends up. Verse 12, they, they hid him in the house of God for six years. And Athaliah reigns as queen in this reign of terror over Judah for another six years. And in the seventh year, Jehoiada, who is that priest, he is going to covenant with the people. He's going to covenant with the king. And they're going to start this second spiritual, uh, this, uh, second spiritual revival. And John my, John, my remote's not working. Can you advance to the next slide? I'll just ask you to re- advance them when that goes. Or did it freeze up? Well, if it froze up, we're just going to keep going anyway. Can you advance it or no? You got it? Can you go to the... There we go. All right, thank you. Spiritual revival. Uh, so Joash is, going to, Joash is going to start as king. And as we look at the end of chapter uh, 22, into chapter 23, Jehoiada, as king, is going to... Uh, he's going to... Or as priest, is going to make him the king. They set guards around the temple. They're going to have a coronation ceremony and they're going to bring in uh, Joash at a young age, but they're going to make him king. And I love, I love verse 11 because I, I want, I want to believe verse 11 somehow when they start chanting this, that they did it with an English accent in verse 11, that look at what they, and Jehoiada and all his sons anointed him. And they said, God save the king. I believe, you know, they had to do it with an English accent. But they, they're shouting out, God save the king. The king is, the king is exalted. And when Athaliah hears this, she starts shouting treason, treason at the end of verse 13. Well, they take Athaliah and they say, you're done. They take her out of the city. She is put to death and she is no more. And this spiritual revival begins with Joash. And look at what happens as Joash comes in. When there is godly influence in his life. Verse 2 of, uh, of chapter 24. Joash did right in the sight of the Lord, all the days of Jehoiada the priest. As this man, Jehoiada, was there influencing him, he was living righteously and walking before the Lord. Verses 5 and 6, he's going to realize that the house of the Lord has been hurt. It has been damaged. He wants to get worship restored. He says this worship is important. And so he takes a collection in verses 5 and 6. He tells the Levites, he says, hey, go take a collection for the Lord's house. Go around and create this box and, and take this up. And the Levites, like good clergy, they don't want to ask people for money, so they just sort of slow it down and they don't do a lot. And he looks at them and he says, no, you need to go. And the people start giving in verses 10. And the princes and all the people they brought in and the cast of the chest that they made to an end. And they did this day by day, verse 11 at the end, gathering money in abundance. People who were under revival, who were excited about giving back to the Lord, they wanted to give in order to see the worship progress. They wanted to see it growth. They, they were willing to do that. And so he, he goes and he's living righteously. But then you're going to find something that happens. Verse 17 says, Now after the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. And the king hearkened unto them. 
So Jehoiada dies and there's a change that happens in his life. Who's he listening to? He was listening to a priest. He was listening to a godly man. And now he starts listening to peers. He starts listening to other people. And it says, They left the house of the Lord their God and they served in the groves and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for their trespasses. And verse, verse, number, verse number 20, John, if you can flip that slide. Uh, verse number 20, it says, Why, Zechariah the prophet comes to him, why transgress you the commands of the Lord? You cannot prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. As we walk away, as they walk away from the commands of doing the commands of the Lord, there is not prospering. And so Joash is remembered in verse 22. He's going to be remembered, but eventually he's going to be put to death. He's going to, he's going to die. Verse 25, they conspire. His servants conspire against him to kill him. And he is, he's, put to, he's put to death. And his son Amaziah is going to take over. And there's still, there's still this spiritual, spiritual uh, hearkening that takes place. And Amaziah takes place in verse 2 of chapter 25. Look what he does. He did right in the sight of the Lord, but he wasn't perfect. It wasn't a wholehearted devotion. But he was trying to do what was right. He was working through it. He's living like many, many people live. Trying to do right, struggling, but he's not wholly devoted, devoted to him. Now it came to pass when the kingdom was established that he slew his father's servants, the ones who had killed his father. He, he takes them back. But look what he does. He does it in relationship to the word of God. He says, but he did not, as is written in the law, the book of the Moses, where the law commanded, he did not kill the fathers. He did not kill the, or the children. Because it says the fathers shall not die for the children, neither shall the children die for the for the fathers. And it really highlights uh, a perspective here that um, the personal responsibility of each person in regard to their sin. The, the children did not pay because of the the killing of the, the way their fathers acted. They didn't. Uh, they weren't put to death because of that. And it highlights some of that personal responsibility. Now, what Amaziah is going to do? He's going to, he knows a battle's coming. It seems like that's going to happen, right? How's he going to respond to the pressure? Verses 5 through 13, he's going to hire mercenaries from the north of Israel. He's going he's gonna to have them come down and he's going to pay them. He's going to pay them a lot of money. And when he does that, the, uh, the, the uh, prophet of God is going to come to him and say, you don't, you don't need them. Don't trust in them, trust in God. And his response is he actually sends those mercenaries away. They're not happy with them. They want to go to battle, but he ends up going to fight Edom and he wins a battle because he was trusting in the Lord. Now, there's some, there's some price that's paid down in verse 13. The soldiers that he had sent back while he's away, they fell upon some of the cities of Judea or Judah and they smote them and they took spoil away from them. But in the long run, it was the right thing for Amaziah to do. He followed after what God had said. And verse number, uh, verse number uh, 16 uh, sorry, wrong verse. Uh, verse number 14 and 15. When he comes back from the, the land of Edom, after he wins a battle, look what he does. He faces, a, he faces a task. He comes back and he brought the gods of the children of Seir, the land of Eden, Edom in that area, and set them up to be his gods and bowed down himself before them and burnt incense unto them. Wherefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Amaziah. Are you getting a trend here? That even though these people were spiritual for numbers of years, they were still able to fall away from God. They still, in their, wicked, in, in their, in their selfishness, their wickedness, they had moments where they fell away from God. It's still possible. And so he's going he's gonna to die. 
And his son in chapter 26 is going to take over. His son is Uzziah. Uzziah is going to be king. And verse 4, it says, He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah did. In verse 5, what does he do? He sought the Lord. Verse number 7, he's going to face the Philistines and others. And he says, And God helped him against the Philistines. Who does the Lord help? He helps those who are seeking after him. Those who are not forsaking him. And so we know that Uzziah is, is seeking after after him. In fact, in verses 8 through 15, we see the, the reforms of Uzziah. We see the economic upturn. We see the, the many inventions that he did, the many different things that Uzziah was able to do in relationship to the economic prosperity of Judah. And there was spiritual prosperity too. In fact, the, it became such a prosperous time that Hezekiah battled with something. Look, at, look down in verse number uh, 16. Verse number 16. It says, But when he was strong... His heart was lifted up to his destruction. Prosperity. God had used him. The people loved him. He was becoming this person. And everybody was like, nobody can touch Uzziah. He is the man. And yet in his prosperity, in his strength, his pride, his self-righteousness crept in. For he transgressed against the Lord and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. That was the priest's job. He presumed it upon himself that he could go into the temple and do something that was not according to God's word for him to do. But in his self-righteousness, in his pride, he did that. We know what happens. He has leprosy that strikes him on the forehead. In verse, uh, verse 19, it's going to strike him and it's going to strike his whole body. And because of that leprosy, what ends up happening? Verse 21, he's cut off from the temple. Uzziah the king was a leper unto the day of his death and dwelt in the house being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. The one thing he wanted to be part of, the one place where he could worship the true and only God, he's now cut off from that. A severe sacrifice to, to a, a severe consequence to a holy, righteous, just man who allowed his self-righteousness and pride to think, I'm okay. I'm, it's not going to happen to me to creep in and to have that happen. So during that time, his son Jotham helps rule because as a leper, he's not going to be able to do the ruling. He's going to be outcast. He's going to rule and he becomes uh, the ruler. And there's not a lot said about Jotham. Verse 2. He did that which is right of chapter 27. He did that which is right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah did. Howbeit, he did not enter into the temple of the Lord. He learned. And the people did, yet corruptly. Did you catch that? One of the few times where the people are not following the king. In fact, they're starting to slide away. The king's doing right, but the, the nation's tenor is falling down into spiritual decline. In fact, we find by the time that Jotham dies... And Ahaz comes on the scene in chapter 28. The, the, the nation's just into apostasy. They're into walking away from the Lord. He does, Ahaz, the next, the next spiritual decline. The next spiritual decline that happens is uh, Ahaz uh, in number three, uh, the third spiritual decline. Sorry, chapter 28. All chapter 28 is about Ahaz. Verses one to three, you see that he does not do right in the sight of the Lord, like his father David did. He walks in the ways of Israel. Look, look how far this guy goes. And also to molten images of Baal. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of Hinnom, and he burnt his children in the fire. 
Child sacrifice. He throws his own kids into the fire as a sacrifice to these pagan deities and the abomination of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He's worshiping in Canaanite practices. He's finding himself doing that. And Ahaziah is just extremely wicked. By the time you get to chapter 6 and verses 15, the wickedness is so bad that God sends in uh, sends in Syria in verse 5. And he sends in Israel from the north to, to bring out children out of their captivity. And he's using them as a scourge against them. And it continues happening. But look at, look at what Ahaziah, or, uh, excuse me, Ahaz does in verse 16. While that's all happening, what's he depending upon? At that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. He's not turning to the Lord. He's turning to the superpower of the day. He's giving him money. He's throwing money at a spiritual problem, hoping that that's going to fix it. Hoping that if he gives enough to him, that it'll work out. Rather than relying upon God, he's going to rely upon the pagans. He's going to rely upon the world. And there's, there's all of this that starts to happening. And in distress, the distress keeps ramping up. And in verse 23, as he's facing these armies that are coming against him, what does he do? He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, the gods of Syria, which had smote him earlier, verse 5. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, therefore I'll sacrifice to them that they might help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all of Israel. And what does he do? Ahaz gathered the vessels out of the house of God. He cuts them into pieces, the vessels of the house of God. And he shuts the door of the temple. He closes it. Not Jehovah worship, it's set to the side. We're going to be following after worldliness. We're going to follow after carnality. We're going to follow after everything else. And we're not going to worship the way God wants us to. And we're not going to live the way God wants us to. And we're not going to follow his word. We're going to do what we want to do. And so Ahaz ends up dying. Of course, you're going to know that. And, and that happens. And his son is going to come on the scene. His son is named Hezekiah. And as Hezekiah comes, it's one of the largest reform, the numbers of verses given to any of the reforms. And Hezekiah, he does right. Look in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 29. He did that which is right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. He, in the first years of his reign, in the first month, what does he do? He opened the doors that his father shut. He opened the doors of the house and he repairs them. He understood the importance of getting the temple back on. He understood the importance of worshiping God correctly. And he said, we're going to change this. We're going to do what's right in God's eyes. We're not going to do what's wrong. We're going to live the way God expects us to live. And all of verse, uh, from, from chapter, verse 4 all the way through 19, he's going to be getting the spiritual house of God, the temple back in order because he wants that place because when that is right, the people can have sacrifice. The people can be right with God. And that, that begins that spiritual responsibility. He understood the priority of worshiping God. He understood that. And in verse 23 and 24, what does he do? He prepares this blood sacrifice. There's going to be a sacrifice and, and that's going to happen for the sins of the people and for his sins. And he's going to, he's going to have that, that done. And they're, uh, they're going to take place. And it, it just, it reminds me to Jesus Christ. The only thing that can take away our sins, the only thing that can take care of it is the blood. And the blood of Jesus Christ is that what sacrifice, his sacrifice is what covers our sin. And the picture of that, the beautiful picture that, that takes place in these verses, verse 23, and they brought forth the goats and the sin offering before the king and the congregation and they laid their hands on them and the priest killed them and made a reconciliation with their blood upon the altar and to make atonement for all of Israel to bring them back in their right standing with God. 
They, Hezekiah understood they needed their nation, their people to get right with God. And they understood that it was only through what God had established. And so this, this revival is happening. Notice, notice as Hezekiah continues through this. Verse 6 of chapter 30. He's, he's so excited about seeing revival happen. He sends out letters to all of Judah and all of Israel. Even to the, the guys in the north. The people who separated from them. The people who have been their, their bane of existence over the last decades. And he sends it to them. And he sends posts and letters from all of the kings and the princes throughout all of Israel. And all of Judah. And the commandment of the Lord saying, king, king saying, children of Israel... Turn again unto the Lord God, of the Lord God of Isaac and Jacob and Abraham, of Israel, and he will turn to the remnant to you. He will he'll forgive you. Look in verse 7. And don't be like your fathers and like your brothers, which trespassed against the Lord your God, Lord God of their fathers. He gave them up to desolation. He allowed those, their consequences. He's saying, turn from your sins. Verse number 9. He says, verse number eight, he says, yield yourselves. He says, serve the Lord. He says, you need to, to get back to submitting under God. You need to get back to serving God. And he's, he's crying out for them in the midst of, of all this, this distress and all of their turning away from God. He's saying, yield yourself, serve God. And verse number nine, I love it. It's, it's becoming one of my favorite verses. It, it really hit me like just as I am this morning. And thinking about this verse. For if you turn again unto the Lord, what will he do? Look at the end. So that your children can come again to the land. He says, for the Lord your God is gracious. He is merciful. And he will not turn away his face from you if you return unto him. He's looking at Israel who's living in Baal worship, has been doing it for decades, and he's saying, if you turn back to God, he will not turn away from you. He is gracious. He is merciful. He wants, there is nobody in this room who is so far from God that they cannot come back to God because he is gracious. He is merciful. He is the God who wants us to turn to him in the midst of our sin. In the midst of our downslides. And he's there. He upholds us. His grace is sufficient for us. No matter where we're at. He wants us back to him. And Hezekiah pleads with them. And we know that he's walking sincerely. Verse 21 of chapter 31. Skipping ahead a little bit. He says... That Hezekiah, verse 20, did throughout all, the, all, the, all Judah and wrought that which is good. And every work he began and he did the law and the commandments. And how did he do it? He sought the Lord. He did it with all of his heart. And what happened? He prospered. He prospered. Later on in the passage in chapter 32, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. What's, what's Hezekiah going to do? Here's this righteous man for all these years. We've seen what happens to all these other kings who've lived righteously and we know they, they have struggles in the end. What does Hezekiah do when the, the superpower of the world turns all of its missiles upon Judah and they siege Jerusalem? How does he respond? What is he going to do? Look in chapter 32, verses 7 and 8. He says, Be strong. He says, be strong. 
uh, be courageous. Don't be afraid for the, the dismay, uh, nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. For there be more with us, this little backwater province of Judah, there is more with us than with him. With him is the arm of flesh, but with us, the Lord, our God, to help us, to fight our battles, to go forward for us. And what did the people do? They rested. They said, you know what? That's right. God is in control. God is on our side. God wants us to go forward. God is with us. And they rested in Hezekiah. And Hezekiah finishes out. He does, he does have a little bit of a battle. His self-righteous pride at the end of chapter 32 creeps in a little bit. Uh, verse 26, you're going to see that he, won't, he refuses to ask for a sign in the midst of his sickness. And says, Hezekiah humbled not himself for the pride of his heart both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon him. What did he do? He humbled himself. Why? Because look right above it, verse 25. Hezekiah would not ask for that sign, but his response when sin was brought before him was not anger. It was not wrath. uh, It was not killing somebody. It was not dismissing them or throwing them in prison like the kings before him had done. He said, wait, you're right. And he humbles himself, he confesses, he repents, he gets right with the Lord, and the Lord still blesses him for that. And, and Hezekiah finishes his days out, and he dies. And the story hits a rapid pace in the rest of the book. You're going to have Manasseh, his son. His son is going to, Hezekiah's son is horrid. He, verse chapter 33, 3 and 4, but he did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. Manasseh does. He built altars, verse 3, in the high places, which his father Hezekiah had broken down. He builds them back up. He reared up altars to Baal. He made groves. He worshiped all the hosts of, the he, of, of, of heaven. Any, anything that was a god, he tried to serve them. He built, all houses, he built altars. Where did he do it? In the house of the Lord. He not only built altars in the house of the Lord, he's going to set up idols in the house of the Lord. Verse 7, he carves an image and he puts it in the house of the Lord. The response of God at the end of verse 6, he wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. God was angry with this man. He had taken this reform of Hezekiah, this revival, and he thrust it into worldliness. And God deals with him. So Manasseh, verse 9 made Judah the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err, to do worse than the heathen. To catch that? He made the people of God live worse than the world lives. So what does God do? He's going to take the captains of the hosts of Assyria, verse 11, and he's going to have them carry Manasseh out in fetters, in bonds. Carry him out to Babylon and put him in exile. And what is Manasseh's response? It's beautiful. This pagan, raunchy, disgusting man. How does he respond? And when he was in affliction, he sought the Lord. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He looks and he says, God, you're God. I'm not. I'm wrong. I need to confess my sins. I need to get right with you. And he humbles himself before God. It says he prayed unto him. 
And he was entreated of him, and God heard his supplication. And what does he do? He brings him back to Jerusalem. He brings him out of exile and into his kingdom. He puts him back in his place. And Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. And there's this little personal revival that takes place in a man that you would not expect it. There's nobody in this room who's further from God than Manasseh. I don't think any of you have been practicing child sacrifice and, and pagan sexuality and all these other things that he was involved in. Nobody is too far. And he looks and he says, he came back to the Lord and he was established. Verses 15 and 16. And he took away the strange gods. Was he serious? It's great to say words. But what does he do in verses 15 and 16? He took away the strange gods. And the idol of the house of the Lord, he took it out. And the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, he cast them out of the city and he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed there upon peace offerings and thank offerings. And he gets into serving God and worshiping God. And he says, this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to be all about God. The people, verse 17, they're, they're still not there. They don't follow him completely. They do a little bit. But they still sacrificed on the high places. The pagan, but they, they did it to the Lord. What were they doing? They were saying, well, we like what's what happening. We like his excitement. We like Manasseh's zeal. We like when our preacher gets up and he preaches. But what we're going to do is we're still going to do God and we're going to do God our way. We're going to try and put it together and live the way we want to live, but also do enough to, to really flesh it out and, and, and try and be godly as well. And they, they live both ways rather than being wholeheartedly devoted to God. So Manasseh is going to die. His son Ammon is going to be king. And verse 22, look what he does. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. And he humbled not himself before the Lord, as Manasseh's father did, verse 23, as Manasseh had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. And so Ammon is going to be killed by his servants. Verse 24, his servants are actually going to kill this guy. And they're going to put Josiah, uh, the, the king, Josiah, the young, the young man, king, make him king. And verse number three of chapter 34, verse number three says, uh, we know that he does right in the light, the eyes of the Lord. Verse two, verse three, in the eighth year of the reign, while he was yet young. So he's 16 years old at this point. What does he begin to do, teens? He began to seek after God of his father, the God of David. In the 12th year, so he's 20 years old now, college student, what's he do? He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from all the high places and all the groves. He's going to take on the big things. He's going to look and say, I'm going to seek God. I'm going to get rid of idolatry. I'm going to worship God the way God intended to be worshiped. And he sets out to live for him. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And Josiah is blessed. Well, he recommissions building, repairing the house of God, which had been destroyed. And in the process of doing that, something happens. Something amazing happens. Go Go down to verse 14. They brought out, when they're going through, they brought out the money and they brought in the house. And Hilkiah, the priest, while he's in the temple cleaning it up and repairing it, he found a book of the law given by Moses. It had been lost. They didn't have it. They're without the word of God. And what happens? They find it. And notice, notice verse 21. He says, go inquire of the Lord. Hezekiah saying, go inquire for me. Talk to the other priests. Talk to the other men of God. What, what is, about this book? We need to know it because great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us 
because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do all that is written in the book. He says the decline, the struggles we've had is because we got away from the word of God. We live the way we wanted to live and we're paying for it because that's the way our fathers lived. They didn't live according to God's word in every aspect of their life. And so it continually spirals and goes and goes. And he wants them to get back into the word of God. And that, that ends up happening as, as Josiah looks down in verse number 30. And the king went to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small. And he read in the ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. You think my message is long? He just read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they all stood there and they all listened. And they were listening as the king stood in his place. And what did they do in response to hearing the word of God? The people made a covenant. They made a commitment with God. And they said, we're going to walk after the Lord. We're going to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul and perform the words of the covenant which are written in the book. And the king makes this this covenant. He makes a commitment. He's willing to say in front of everybody, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be wholeheartedly living for God. Well, you know what's going to happen, right? Josiah is going to die. And what's going to happen? Josiah is going to die. And after he makes this covenant, you get these four guys, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And there's just this rapid fire pace through the end of chapter 36 that, that occurs. And really, these four guys are completely insignificant, even though they're all kings in Israel or Judah, excuse me, that you have, you have Jehoahaz who's on the throne for three months. Then he's gone and Jehoiakim is put on by, uh, by king in Egypt. And what's going to happen in verse 6? He's going to get carried off. Jehoiakim is going to be carried off by this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to see that name a lot more. That name's actually more predominant in this passage than anybody. He's going to carry off. Nebuchadnezzar's going to carry him off to Babylon, bound him in fetters, and carried him to Babylon. And so what did Nebuchadnezzar? He also carried the vessels of the house of the Lord, and he's going to take stuff out of the temple back to Babylon. And what is in the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim? There we are. Jehoiakim, verse 9, was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned three months and ten days. Yeah, that, there you go, guy. An eight-year-old, he just, there he is. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. And when he was expired, when the year was expired, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon. So he's been exiled to Babylon. And he takes more of the godly vessels, the goodly vessels from the house of the Lord. And he sets up Zedekiah as a puppet king of Babylon. He says, all right, as long as you do what you got to do and you just pay tribute to me and everything goes good, you can be in charge. Well, Zedekiah is going to end up rebelling in verse 13 against Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to rebel against the superpower of the day, this little guy who's insignificant. And what ends up happening? That's the final straw. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in with all the armies and all the power of Babylon, and you're going to see the the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 17, Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, that's, that's Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion upon the young man or the maiden or the old man or him that stooped of his age. He gave them all into his hand and he took the vessels of the house of the Lord, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the kings and the princes. And he brought it all to Babylon. And what does he do? He burns the temple. He breaks down the walls of Jerusalem. He burned all the palaces thereof in the fire and everything's gone. And he carries it all the way to Babylon. 
And it ends, the book ends in this utter destruction of the temple, the land, people carried away. And as you look at that, as you look at the the way the passage has went, the way the book has happened, what do you expect? Don't Don't you sort of expect as you go through that you see spiritual decline, spiritual revival, spiritual decline, spiritual revival, spiritual decline, spiritual revival. Ezra gets to the end, it's spiritual decline. What do we expect to be? Spiritual what? Revival. We're waiting for it. And what do we get? We get a decree from Cyrus. It says, now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoke to him by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred in the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation through all the kingdom and put it in his writing saying, thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given to me. And he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. And it ends with Cyrus saying, all right, who's going to go? Who's going to build the temple? Who's going to do this? And you, you get this like hanging story like, okay, what's the answer? Well, when Ezra is writing it, when Ezra is writing it, he's writing all of this to the people who answered that call. The people who came back from Babylon the ones who are in despair, the ones who are looking and saying we're in a spiritual decline, the ones who are saying, is this worth it? Does God really keep his word? Is God behind us? Is God going to strengthen us? Is God going to help us as we go forward? That's who Ezra's writing to, and he's saying, you're the answer. You're the answer to the spiritual decline. Are you going to revive our nation? Are you going to build the walls? Are you going to build the temple, Jews? Are you going to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord? And as they're, they're there and they're listening and they're seeing it, Ezra has basically looked at them and said, you know, despite your, your questions you have, can we trust God? Can we, can we really go forward with him? Can we, can we, do we think he's true to his word? Can we turn around? Can we turn this around? The answer Ezra is, is coming to is yes. Those who turn to God. Those who put their eyes upon God, the answer is absolutely this. He's saying, I want you to have revival. But folks, as we look, even as pastor talked a couple weeks ago, we're in a spiritual decline in our church. And is it just because we don't have the right programs? Is it just because we sing this song and not that song? Is it just because we have, well, we're too conservative and so people don't want anything to do with God? Oh, people, people in this world, they're just, is that the reason? We don't know all those things, but we do know this. The first place we have to start is right here. Looking and saying, do I need revival? Revival is not a meeting. Revival is not a program. It's not one-to-one. It's not something else. It's not, hey, we're finally out of the book of Job. All right, praise God, we're going to do something different. It's not a new series. It's not, did I enjoy the worship service or did I not enjoy the worship service? It's not, oh, wow, he was really charging that message, man. I love when Joe Mark preaches and he gets going and, you know, and, and I love Joe Mark. Don't get me wrong. But that's not, that's not just what revival is. Ezra just gave us a whole primer on Revival. He said, what, what does revival look like? Very quickly, revival is based on our fellowship with God. Revival, 
As we look at it, God is going to bless those who place a high emphasis on his word. I know some of you are probably going to think, all right, here it comes. They're going to give the preaching list. Read the word of God, serve God, do right, and you're going to be good. There's a reason that preachers talk about that so often. Did you catch it through the whole book? As we respond to the word of God, God blesses. God will do it. He wants us to read it. He wants us to be in it. He wants us to yield it. He yielded to it. He wants us to be sharing it. He wants us to do it, to not just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer only. Do we make time? Do I make more time for Netflix binge watching than I do for my God? The answer is sadly, yes, I do. And that is wrong. I need to be a man of the word. And so do you. We want revival. We want God to bless our church. We need to be in this book day and night, studying it, yielding to it. What does God do? God blesses those who depend on him in stress-filled times. It's all stressful for our church right now to have to even think about what do we do in a year? What happens if we don't grow? What happens if we don't mature as a body? It's all stress-filled. Who are we going to turn to? I would say if he was sitting right there, if we turn to Wayne Burgraff only, we're fools. I love him and I will follow him. But ultimately, I'm following God. I turn my eyes upon him. We seek God. We ask him. Because that is where God blesses. God blesses those who not follow a man, but who follow God. Now, God has placed that man in our life, and I am so glad he has. I will follow him, but I ultimately will follow God. What else is revival? God blesses those who genuinely repent of their sins. As I mentioned before, no one in here is worse than Manasseh was. And God will not turn his face. You can look and say, I know I need to get right with God, Pastor, but you don't know what I've done. God does. And he says, I will not turn my face from you. He says, I am a God of compassion and a God of mercy. Repentance is getting right, confessing our sin, admitting before God and taking care of it. Let's do that. You know your sins. I know mine. Let's get them right before God. We want God to bless our church. We need to be a holy church. We need to be a church that is living for God in all aspects of life. And we can do that because God tells us we can. Let's take care of our sins. What else does he say? He says, God blesses those who seek the Lord in prayer. To be men and women of prayer, spending time before our God saying, God, we want revival. God, we want you to work in our nation. We want you to work in our country, in our, in our county, in our city. Lord, I want you to work in my neighbor's life. I want you to work in my friend's life, in my coworker's life. Lord, I want you to work in my life. I want to be praying and going before God. God blesses those who prioritize worship in their lives. Being present, forsaking not the assembling of ourselves, not being the sporadic churchgoer, but saying this place is important because this is the opportunity for me to corporately with other believers worship God. Prioritizing the word of God, or the, the, the worship of God. He talked about in the passages with Hezekiah, serving the Lord, giving to the Lord. All those dynamics is part of who God blesses when we worship God with our lives. 
and we do it corporately. And how is God designed that? God is designed it through the New Testament with the local church. We need to be here. We need to be here regularly. We need to be actively serving. Not like so many of those good kings who, hey, for 35 years I did right, but now I'm in the latter years and I'm okay and I'm not really going to do a whole lot. Serve. Serve. Be part. Be present. And what does God do? God strengthens those who wholeheartedly choose him for life. Those who say, I'm going to live with abandon. One song says, I'm going to live with abandon. I'm going to give you all of my heart, Jesus. Everything. I want to live with this reckless abandon that says it's not about art. It's about God. And when we do that in our lives, God will strengthen us. Remember what he says? The eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout all of the earth to show himself strong in behalf of those who wholeheartedly are turned toward him. Have you turned away from God? Have you looked the other way? Have you allowed yourself to creep in apathy away from God? And you need to be awakened. You need to be revived. Turn to God. Turn back to him. Revival. It occurs when God's imperfect people, that's us, passionately pursue God in every area of life. Not just when we're in here. Let's go out this week and live for God. Let's go out this week and passionately read his word. Let's go out this week and pray and get on our knees before God for people, for souls, for our church. And say, I want to live for him in every area. Because when we are, when we do that, revival is inevitable when God's people get right with God. I don't know where you're at. I know where I've been at for the last week as I've been beaten up time and time again. But are you closer to God right now than you were a year ago, 10 years ago, a week ago? Do you find yourself sliding? Do you find yourself accepting things that you look and say, I'd have never watched that 10 years ago. Eh, not a big deal now. I'd have never let my kids do that five years ago, but eh, no big deal. Why? What's changed? Let's look. Let's look at our lives and say, God, I'm going to live with abandon for you. My heart, not divided. Wholeheartedly to you. Lord, revive me.